So in last episode, we talked about the Electric Universe with Tom Bridgman, who is a, a graduate of Clemson University, where he had studied nuclear astrophysics and black holes, as opposed to me, a lowly planetary geologist who got his PhD drawing circles. So... <laughs> Tom is going to talk with us more in this episode about the Electric Universe, and in particular, we're going to focus on the Electric Sun as a, as a prime example of one of the Electric Universe claims and the various types of claims that stem from it, as well as why we don't, or why mainstream scientists don't actually accept it. So, uh, welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Stuart. Glad to have uh, you back. So with that intro, uh, let's let's get right into it. What okay. is the electric sun? I mean, you mentioned that there are actually four different models or four different primary models of the electric sun within the electric universe umbrella. So what are those? Well, the, you know, four is the ones that, that, that I've actually sort of kept track of or, or, or have started writing about. Uh, I'm sure there's more. Um, uh, so there's... Um, Okay, what the the one of the fir- earlier ones is, of course, the one that uh, Ralph Jurgens had originally d- done, where sort of the sun is the, the photosphere is the product of a bunch of inward streaming electrons that basically light up the sun. Uh, this was actually kind of a spherical type distribution, um, and for this they put to make these electrons all stream towards the sun. You know those little plasma ball things, you know, that show little arcs? Going uh, way to the... If you Google plasma ball, I think the, the, an image will show up. Uh, they're basically these things that... People put them on their desks, you know, and they and they light up and they have the little arc things that dance Oh, around. oh okay. So it has a okay. little base and it has a little electric thingy in the middle and you yes. turn it on and it's sort of like... And it has like yeah, little, yeah, yeah, little yeah, lightning exactly. bolts that you put your your fingers on the edge of the sphere, and it all concentrates to your fingers. That thing, yeah, so, yeah, stuff like that. So it's kind of a model, a little bit like that. Um, this one seems to be the one, the the model that's largely advocated by uh, a variant of this model seems to be largely advocated by Donald Scott, and that was one of the the ones that I had, had treated in my in my first one of my uh, first analyses of Electric Sun claims. Oh, you can get these for 40 bucks on Amazon. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's a, no, no, that's actually interesting to know, because they're, they're kind of cool little things, actually. 30 bucks but, if you want it used. Uh, anyway, yeah, so, and, and for the listeners who, who aren't uh, up with the sun or solar anatomy, the photosphere is the the sphere of photons that we see. It's the actual disk that you would see if you wore uh, very, very, very protective sunglasses and looked at the it's sun. The photosphere where visible light comes from. Because we we also have other surfaces that you know people like for Soho and SDO and stuff like that. They look in the ultraviolet and they kind of see a slightly different surface. Okay. Um, so anyway, this you know these streams of electrons coming in light up light up the photosphere. To get this flow to work, they put a voltage across this arrangement. Now. Um, so somewhere out in, in the distant cosmos somewhere, I'm, usually the assumption is that it's around the heliosphere, around the heliopause or somewhere at that location, about 100 astronomical units out from the sun, beyond Pluto, beyond, well, not even really beyond the Oort cloud. Um, I don't think so. I think that's really more the Kuiper belt in through there. You, you yeah, probably... because Voyager is beyond the heliopause, yeah. so it's yeah. outside of the heliosphere, but it hasn't yeah. gotten to the Oort cloud. Yeah, hypothetical. Got, like, we're, we're, they're still in sort of the the Kuiper Belt region 
through the, through where it's at right now. If I if I something if like that. Yeah. So anyway. So somewhere out there, there, there's this big surface that's somehow maintained at a potential, and then there's the sun in the center that's also maintained at a, at a, a different potential. And they, you know, they do like the simple, you know, power equals voltage times current type thing. And PIV, right? P equals huh? IV. Yeah, yeah. P equals voltage times current. Yeah. And so, if you wanted to. Uh, in, in Scott's case, he used some numbers that actually Jurgens had originally proposed as to what the density of electrons out in that region was, and using that density and some some number, you know, some work with velocity and stuff like that, they would get the, uh, a certain current value coming in, you know, millions of amps, possibly even billions. I can't remember the exact number, but from that they would use that to say, okay, well, the sun's luminosity is four times or two times 10 to the 33 ergs per second somewhere thereabouts and they get a vo- and they get a voltage you know it's a sim- it's simple some simple algebra you get get a voltage and you get a voltage of you know somewhere around a billion volts hmm. well one of the problems you have with these models is well what's maintaining the potential you know like that plasma ball you know there's a battery out there Okay. So that's the real energy source of the sun. That's one. That's one of the problems with a lot of electric universe models is they presuppose that there's this magical power source out there somewhere that's powering these things, that's maintaining these 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 electric potentials so that the the currents can flow. And so, um, so for those of us who hate electricity and magnetism, it's basically you're talking about how the sun has one kind of charge on it, and then there's this mythical or this thing that has another one that's 100 AU away, it also has a charge. But over time, if left to their own devices, it would discharge. The mm-hmm. the, the electricity built up would just go away. And so you have to have something there that's going to keep giving it a charge, right? Right, like the okay. plasma ball. You know, the plasma right. ball, you go and unplug the battery, it's going to, you know, it might do a few last little zips and, and then it'll it'll go dark. So this was this was one of the issues, and that you know I, I had the uh, the um, joke in one of the one of the graphics I produced for you know where's the EMF like the old where's the beef commercial. Mm-hmm. That's another thing dating me, obviously. <laughs> A little bit. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, so this is one of the big problems that is you know, they they presuppose there's these these kind of power sources. There's the question of the return circuit, and this actually is one of the problems mentioned in some of the actual real papers that people ask the questions about when when they were looking at the ideas of the charge and comets as discharge and stuff like that. Well, how does the, the return circuit work? You know, how you know, we don't see, we don't seem to see it. Um and so there were there were problems created by that. So this is this is one of the, those models that um it's been around for a while. Jurgens was one of the original proposers that has been modified a little bit and resurrected by Don Scott. And it creates a whole other set, interesting set of problems because think about what, you, what you've got here. You've got a bunch of electrons streaming in from the heliopause or wherever. They're accelerating. These are actually fairly much classical mechanics calculations. You put a potential across something like that, you can calculate the speed of it anywhere along that track. And I've actually got the graphs on my analysis of this. I've got the um, what I call challenges for electric universe theorists where I sort of summarize a lot of things and, and I have links to the specific models. But you can calculate the speed of these electrons anywhere along, along this path. You can also calculate the speed that the ions must have on the way out because with this voltage, a billion volts, 
you're not going to those ions and electrons ain't going to be sitting still. Nope. They're going to be moving. And, they're, and the electrons will very quickly become relativistic at a billion volts. Hmm. The ions, eh, they get kind of Protons will get fairly close to relativ relativistic. And that's because they're much heavier. But yes, due to their much heavier mass. But the other interesting thing you run into, all these electrons streaming down that are supposed to be lighting up the sun, they're hitting other things in the meantime. There's planets in between there. There's the night side of planets between there that are being hit basically with the equivalent of the outbound solar flux at their position. So why aren't the night sides of planets all lit up? I mean, literally, you, you know, you've got, you've got these high-energy electrons, you know, some, somewhat less than a billion volts, streaming down on the night side of the Earth in this kind of uniform sky glow type thing. But we don't see that. We don't see it on the dark side of the moon. We don't see it, you know, on a, in any of these these locations where we can see the far side of the planet. We should see this stuff. You know, it, it's not, it's like the electrons are like saying, "Oh yeah, I'm going to keep on going, and I'm going to light up down there on the photosphere of the sun." Mm -hmm. So, this is this is one of the problems you run into. Also, if you calculate the densities of these things anywhere along this track, you get huge densities. And you can compare them. There's a, the website spaceweather.com, which publishes from uh, the, the spacecraft sitting at L1 um, the density and intensity of the, the magnetic field and, and stuff like that in the heliospheric region just inside Earth's orbit. So, you know, it's, a, you know, it's about a million miles or so inward of, of, of the Earth. L1 is one of the stable, five stable Lagrange points. And as exactly. You said, the L1 is where the gravity from the sun is equal to the gravity of Earth, and so it's fairly stable. So we stick a lot of stuff there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a real ha handy place to park spacecraft if you want to watch the sun. And it's a little bit more complicated than just the exact balance point because you've got the centripetal. Uh, it's close effect. enough for this podcast. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's close <laughs> enough. But, for this episode, anyway. What the disclaimer says, you know. So, anyway... Um, so, the, so you can compare these to measurements, and they're way off. Um, I've got. Let's, oh, actually, let me. I should bring up that page on my my site where I've got all this stuff documented, and I can actually, you know, give give some give some numbers. I love um, when I can do that during an interview. You, you got the stuff already written down. Already written, exactly. Like, oh wait, wait, I can pull that up. It's right here. Just give yeah. me a second. So I get the pro solar proton wind speed, the outflowing protons, about 200 times faster than the solar wind. Well, that's kind of a, a, a fail <laughs> for the model. Because we don't see that. Because we don't see that. The, the, the solar wind is, you know, anywhere from a few hundred to a little over a thousand kilometers per second. It's, it's not, it's, um, you know, that's dependent on like a CME and stuff like that. It'll get a little bit faster in the event of a CME and stuff like that. Coronal mass ejection. Um, yeah. Coronal mass ejection, right. Remember, my um, podcast listeners are not all astrophysicists. Ah, yeah. <laughs> for, for, forget, forgive me. That's my daytime terminology, too. That's <laughs> uh, okay. That's why I'm here, to clarify. Exactly. Okay, so um, get the energetic particle fluxes. Again, huge compared to what we observe. And this, is stuff, and this stuff, by the time it's at electrons at you know, less than a billion volts, that's hard radiation. I mean, you could fry an astronaut with that. And in fact, I eventually actually did those calculations. And the, 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 the radiation fluxes were far higher than anything we designed spacecraft for. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so I've got, I've got this, little, this, this little segment that, uh, that I call, uh, it was actually a series of about five or six, uh, six articles here called Death by Electric Universe, <laughs> which is basically all the ways that an electric sun model might get you killed. 
Now, was this before actually... or after Phil Plate's Death from the Skies book? Yeah, I, well, you know, I had to, you know, I, I uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can't trademark, you know, a couple of words. <laughs> so, you know. Fair enough. But, uh, but anyway, yeah. But it's, it's just one of the, those things that, that, you know, you look at. And so this has implications that are immediately impacting satellites and the way we travel in space. Uh, you know, I, I called uh, Don Scott's model because they get all upset if I name someone and say it's an ad hominem. If I name the person who advocated the model, so I've adopted other names for the model so I can talk about them without, you know, giving the guy publicity. Um, but, you know, I call that, that particular model with the, with the um, electrode in the center and the heliopause being one of like I call that solar capacitor because for those of us who enjoy DNM, it's like a spherical capacitor. And a lot of the analysis for the electromagnetism you can do using the same a lot of the same equations. So, um, so a lot you find of us that, got through ENM by uh, not copying, but getting help from the yes. person next to us. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I did I did some rough estimates on the um, on the exposure rate, and let's see here. Oh yes, okay. Uh, for the uh, the solar capacitor model. I got that uh, the astronaut traveling through space, you know, they're they're going to be up there for at least an hour, and so we expect we estimate his exposure each hour is thirty eight thousand rads per hour. Now um, that's kind of a problem because above three hundred rads in one hour, you can expect serious health problems. And so you know, you got, you got that your astronauts out there. It's one thing if they're inside a spacecraft. Of course, if they're in a spacesuit. On an EVA, it's far worse. So that that was sort of like the the the, the solar capacitor model, okay. and there's a variant, a flip side of that that one person is advocating that is, uh, one of the Birkeland models is sort of the flip side of that where the cat where the cathode nanode change places. Well, so it sounds like basically with the so the solar capacitor model by he has who. He who shall remain nameless. Mm -hmm. uh, ba basically, it's one of those cases where you have an idea, and it may seem sort of plausible at first, mm -hmm. but then you have to look at what the other consequences would be besides the problem that you want to solve. Without, right. you, know, you don't realize, or the people making the claim don't tend to realize that despite what they like to say about scientists, nothing exists in a vacuum in that... <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> right, so this is because we're talking about the space, but yeah, nothing exists in a vacuum in that it has all of these other implications. And in mm -hmm. this case, one of those implications is that it would mean the solar wind would have to be moving this fast because it's a charged particle moving in an electric potential. And mm -hmm. it also means that the planets would be lit up with all of this electrical stuff and it means that there would be this amount of radiation and it's basic physics and you can say oh well that basic physics shouldn't apply here and it's like but it's basic <laughs> physics that we can test and applies to everything else so yeah. you're wrong <laughs> kind, kind mean, of situation well i actually had one person suggest that maybe the electrons tunnel their way down to the sun quantum tunneling oh okay <laughs> Piece of, no. Why not? You know, I, I, I use that my, my gag about everything I need to know about science. I learned from watching Star Trek. Oh, we can solve uh, that problem with a, a pulsed tachyon beam. Says, but aren't those notoriously unstable? Not if we modulate it with a with a, a some chronometric particles. You know, and it's just buzzwords all over the place. But yeah, this, this, is the way, this is the way they think real science works. So yeah, but but uh, 
so yeah, that that was the that was the, the big item for for the solar capacitor model. Okay, so what's the second model? The second model, the one that you mentioned, where they flip the cathode and the anode, basically. Yeah, that's that that was more like the Birkeland model. Okay, and, and does that have the same problems? It, it has similar type problems, but in this case, the electrons are moving out and the ions are moving in. Now, the interesting part about Birkeland's three models is that in his book, he says he wasn't able to get these to work. <laughs> okay, so you people says, just sort of you know, overlook those. Yeah, they, they are, yeah, the, the pre- people advocating those haven't looked at that. He he states that you know says I couldn't really get this to work. But, you know, maybe that there, there might be some future discovery in electromagnetism that, you know, future electrical engineers will be, will be using. It's because it would be just so useful. But, you know, it, it was interesting to actually read what Birkeland himself said versus what his fans, his modern-day fans, want to say to, to sort of, you know, this sort of like – Tesla has a similar kind of cult around, around him of, oh, he thought of all these great things and, you know, he was, you know, the, 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 the you know, giant death rays and stuff like that or, or, or whatever uh, was attributed to him. Well, to and be fair, they, to be yeah, fair, they, what about um, Darwin? So people say uh, – this is you – know, nothing to do with the electric universe, hmm. but I don't want to be uh, accused of not being fair because – uh, Darwin, for example, said in Origin of Species that there are various things that he can't explain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of intelligent design people and creationists point to that and say, well, look, the founder of your field says that mm-hmm. this is impossible or I can't explain it, therefore it doesn't work. And mm-hmm. how is that different from this case where the not necessarily the founder, but one of the originators of the electric universe uh, field said that it doesn't work. So how is that different from what creationists say about Darwin? Well, you know, the nice thing about science is that because the stuff is out there and they know, understand, you know, procedures and, and controls and, and in particular physical sciences, the beauty of, you know, mathematics allowing it to to work is that other people are able to test these ideas and find out. And of course, the big problem that in Birkeland's time was they still didn't know how atoms worked. Like I said, the the Bohr model was published the same year as Birkeland's Aurora book came out. So I'm not sure it's it's not clear reading it whether he had actually heard of that or whether he understood fully the implications of it that it would mean for other things. And this is always a problem though because you know get. Researchers were always kind of stuck in the idea. Of, oh yeah, I, I, I've determined this, says, and I think that maybe there's a you know maybe that's a clue to how something else works, and it's perfectly okay to speculate. It's fun to speculate. Oh yeah, um, I've come across that. You know, and, and then you sit down. And there's loads of um, uh, there's this one guy who used to publish, and strangely enough, a, a number of papers that I'm surprised the Electric Universe people hadn't picked up on, uh, where he looked at ideas like electrostatic fields accelerating cosmic rays and stuff like that, and he looked at some of these really off-the-wall ideas and actually published papers on them, and, you know, he found out, well, you know, made a bunch of predictions, didn't work, move on, I'll work on, work on the next new idea. Um, some, I, I wonder whether some of the people that get really attached to this stuff are sort of like, you know, the, where they, they say, oh, well, you know, I had this great idea, and I think my next great idea is is also you know must be just as valid and they become too enamored of, of the idea and then when they find out it doesn't work well you know they, they can't move on because they feel you know it's, uh, it's the, 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 everything I need to know I learned from watching Star Trek it's like you know the inventor of the the M five computer you know I will be great you know today I will be brilliant you know and he mm-hmm. wants to be the next you know the the pre his previous successes were not a fluke you know things like that and so some of them get stuck with it but some of them. 
are, are really fascinating in the sense that they, they can look at these off-the-wall ideas. And I, I thank them for at least publishing a paper so that you can find it and find out that, oh, this has already been done. Someone has already looked at some of these questions and move on because there's so many people that, you know, you, you look at it and you say, oh, well, you know, well, maybe the speed of light was higher in the past. And they do this, a simple calculation of what it would imply and say, oh, that doesn't work. Throws it in the trash can, goes on. Right. So in this case, it's the repeatable science and it's yes. that it was entirely possible that maybe there would be something we would discover that would validate it. But it that hasn't happened. Happen case. Yeah. All right. <laughs> he, 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 he was not lucky, you know. Um, so but, you know, and and in that sense, the nice thing I, I, I could have to, to give a little bit of a tip of the hat to the to the uh, to some of the Electric Universe guys. I really did enjoy reading about Berkland because my opinion of him is a lot better than it was from just reading their claims about him. <laughs> and I also read a very good biography of him that was written by a guy over in Norway. I actually had some email correspondence with him about it to f- try to find out more about some of the cosmological things. And um, But there's a really good um, um, biography on, on uh, Berkland that, that was really quite enjoyable. And Berkland was, was a character. He, re- he, he really kind of was. And it's kind of a shame that he died young, but he, he was very imagined. And he he built a lot of the early um, industrial age, uh, you know, electrification systems and stuff like that. He, he laid the foundations for that in Norway. And uh, he, he I think he's actually on a postage, a postage stamp or a, or a bill or something like that, uh, some currency. Hmm. Uh, because he was play, he was so he was he was sort of like their their big scientist in, in the 1900s. And uh, it's a shame he died so so young. And there there has been speculation that some of his ideas might have been a little bit off because of possible chemical poisoning in his laboratory. Because a lot of these labs that um, at the time when they were doing the electrical stuff, they'd have mercury floating around to seal, you know, mercury and wax and stuff like that to seal things. And there was a, a notorious wave of, of mercury poisonings before they understood fully what was going on. And there was some spe- – uh, one of the – one space physicist actually speculated about that and this one biographer actually kind of looked at that to see if there was any other evidence of other type of stuff. But uh, Berkland, you know, he, he was kind of a um, – he kind of worked himself to death is almost what it looks like. But he was a very energetic guy, apparently a very entertaining, and he didn't take himself too seriously. I mean he, he – he, he, you know, un- unlike his modern-day fan club that, that take – that take this stuff way too seriously. He he kind of understood the limitations of what he was doing, and he hoped that he might be right, proven right in the future. But he, for some things, he just didn't. I mean, the Aurora turned out to be a great success, and his name is remembered for that. And and they sort of you know they name these things Berkland currents, these parallel um, current streams with magnetic fields running along them uh, in his honor. Uh, they they're not exactly quite like the the the, the currents that he originally was proposing. But uh, around the 60s, 70s, a lot of people started referring to these these streams in, in the upper ionosphere forming the aurora as Berkland currents. And how do you so, spell his last name? B-E, no, B-I-R-K-L-A-N-D. All right, because when yeah, he's I... He's got a good Wikipedia page. When I search for Berkland and I was spelling with an E, all I'm getting is ah. the earthquake guy. Oh. Uh, who, I, yeah, I talked about in a... Previous episode. Yes, Christian spelled with a K. All right, so getting back to this. Okay. Uh, where were we? Did we talk about the second model yet? Okay. Now, um, well, that's sort of like the the the, the flip side 
uh, of that. Um, and, and there's other variants of it that, that I can talk about as the fourth model. The second one that was kind of interesting is um, Wall Thornhill says, that, oh, the suns that like the, the, the intersection of this gas ball with, with one of these big monstrous Berkman currents that powers it. Hmm. So, and, it, and the sun lights up, you know, like an incandescent light. The fact that it's got a black body spectrum, eh, they, they, they won't deal with that. Um, that's, sometimes that gets modified to say that, well, it's actually at the focus of a, a, what they call a Z-pinch. And this is, a, this is kind of a, a – they, they found early on when they, when they make a big current like this, the magnetic field actually reinforces sort of the constriction of the current. You know, it kind of helps confine it. But it kind of does a little bit too good a job. And so if you get an area that's got like a, li a little that wobbles a little bit and gets a little bit higher magnetic field, it will tighten, it'll constrict the current a little bit more, which increases the force, which increases the pressure, which makes it constrict a little bit more. And these things can generate an incredible amount of pressure in the center of them as, as one of these current streams is collapsing. They're notoriously unstable. But one of the, the versions of, of this model is that the sun is that one of these constrictions in there. Well, how long has the sun been around? Well, if you believe classical astronomy or you know, modern astronomy, it's been around for about 5 billion years. Um, we're not quite sure how old the sun is in this particular model, but it sort of implies that, okay, well, there's this big current stream that's currently lighting up the sun. Well, you know, suppose some other object passes close enough to it that the stream like jumps over and lights up that other current lights up that other body as the sun. There's a bunch of implications about this model. The sun may just like turn on, turn off. We still don't know what's powering these currents. Hmm. Right. So there's that whole issue of how is this thing st stable for any length of time? Um, that's really a hard calculation to do. Um, you know, they, they talk about, you know, the stability issues. You can make them last a little bit longer by running a, a magnetic field in parallel that helps hold the pressure out a little bit, uh, which is done by engineers to try to make, use these things for various experiments and stuff like that. But so, so there's the whole stability issue. But the other issue is if you run such a current through there, it generates a magnetic field. This is one of the big things about, you know, electric universe. Oh, if you've got a magnetic field, you must have a current somewhere. Um, and that's kind of true, except electromagnetic waves propagate on with changing electric and magnetic fields all the time. And the current, you know, it was up back there so at some point when the thing was created, but you don't have to worry about it when you're just looking at the photon traveling along or the electromagnetic wave traveling along. So you run into the problem there. Well, do the calculation. How much power do you need in that current to create the luminosity of the sun? And what kind of magnetic field would that have? And it's huge. So um, let me get let me get some of the values for the electromagnetic field here. So yeah, I'm in under death by electric universe. I got uh, some other things here, and it turns out that there there actually turns out to be this really interesting little simple relationship between the magnetic field at any given radius and the luminosity of the star that you can power by it. Now this turns out to be a lower limit because you need at least that much energy to light up the star, and then you need a little bit more energy to make sure this current like continues on. So you get um, you. It turns out to be a very simple relationship of the charge times the luminosity divided by the average kinetic energy of, of your electrons, and you get the magnetic field. And and then there's a, some some one over r material out there. So at one AU for uh, a current of uh, a corresponding to just one solar luminosity, we get a magnetic field of about 
seven Tesla. That's about 7,000 Gauss. Okay, and the magnetic field of the sun is? On the order of nanoteslas, a billionth of a Gauss. <laughs> okay. Uh, is it nan- a, billion, a, a trillionth? Of Tesla, say. Yeah. I was going to so, say a nano so they're, would they're, be a trillion. off by, you know. Several orders of magnitude. Six, or six, or six orders of magnitude. Yeah. So that, just a perfect example of, of one of these issues. And, again, if you go to spaceweather.com, they actually publish the measured magnetic field value at the A spacecraft very often. It's, you know, on the order of, uh, you know, nanoteslas. Uh, so, yeah, nano, there's a billionth. Uh, yeah, so that's 10 to the ninth. And it's actually their model predicts about a Tesla. So yeah, so yeah, they're all off by you know a nice hefty amount. The other thing I thought was really kind of fun about this particular calculation was you have a spacecraft moving through a magnetic field. Now, spacecraft has conducting and non-conducting elements on it. But another nice artifact of, of electromagnetism, which we use in generators all the time, is if you have a conductor moving through a magnetic field, it generates a current or at least a voltage potential across the object. And just some rough order of magnitude estimates on for a spacecraft, I was getting for like a one meter size spacecraft, about 200,000 volts would be induced across the spacecraft. Now, we don't really make them quite that hardy, but that's that's pretty fatal for, for a spacecraft. In fact, the, the, some of the early... Around the from around the 1960s to the 1970s, they started noticing spacecraft w- would be dying for mysterious reasons, and they eventually attributed it to charge buildup due to the spacecraft move, orbiting the Earth around the up in the upper ionosphere, picking up plasma, picking up um, you know the metal sides of it exposed to the sun would be hitting ultraviolet radiation, which would boil off electrons, the photoelectric effect, which would charge up the spacecraft. It would build up a potential difference relative to the night side. It would generate a voltage from it across the spacecraft uh, on the order of 300 or 1,000 volts or so, which would be enough to fry their spacecraft or at least knock out parts of it. Sometimes they would, they would like dis- dissipate the charge and restart it. But, and that's uh, not evidence for the electric universe because... It's a known well, effect that hasn't have to do with any electric universe predictions, or well, the the issue is that, that we we stu- again we're studying plasmas. You know, the, the astronomers are not ignorant of plasmas, and a lot of actual leading edge plasma research is actually being done to support certain types of astronomy programs to try to figure out you know what kind, what their spectra is under these conditions and stuff like that. So this kind of stuff, you know, it supports. That one, astronomers have sort of known about electric fields for a long time. And it turned out that a very simple standard model of the Earth's ionosphere sort of had this information in there. We had the ultraviolet radiation from the sun, which we knew about. We have the plasma in the upper ionosphere that the spacecraft sort of goes through and makes a wake. The moon makes a, a similar type of electromagnetic wake when it passes through both the solar wind and the Earth's magnetotail. They've got a couple of satellites called Artemis out there right now that are doing a lot of studies on that. But these are all things that fit within the standard paradigm. It's just, in, in this case, it turned out to be that someone didn't particularly look at this, this case. And one of the things I also wondered about is, you know, they started noticing these things around the 60s and 70s. I'm wondering whether the early spacecraft were built a lot hardier, and so they survived some of these issues a lot better. And as the 60s migrated into the 70s, they were going down and going to microelectronics, which had much smaller tolerances and that maybe they started crossing that threshold and started to realize oh hmm, well 
we're going to have to deal with this problem. And there's actually a number of codes where they do experiments on that. I wrote about a whole series of, of pieces on um, plasma modeling and how there's sort of like commercial codes that satellite designers use to say, you know, what kind of voltages are likely to be induced in your spacecraft in this orbit. Um, so they can so they can properly, you know, shield their spacecraft to make sure that it can handle can handle the voltages, have, you know, appropriate grounding or whatever they do. I'm not quite sure how they ground something in, that's sort of in a vacuum. I assume they have to put some extra wires someplace where it can bleed off the excess charge back into the area so the potential can't build up. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it, it was just one of the little interesting discoveries of how, yeah, they kind of missed that this this kind of thing would happen. Actually, I'm almost willing to bet that if you look, dug hard enough, you'd probably find some little paper in an obscure journal where someone was speculating about this. And and just it just never quite got general notification until someone started losing satellites and they realized oh this is it this is why so they actually you know do modeling programs and there's uh, uh, the ESA has uh, something that I think they promote on, on one of their sites and if you search around for spacecraft charging and stuff like that they'll talk about this but one of the issues that you run into is you find a mention of electric field like that electric universe but, oh yeah that's evidence for our theory that proves that our theory was right well it proves that yes there are electric fields in the cosmos, but there's sort of a, 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 a spice on top of the, of the general overall view. It's kind of like saying, well, you know, the Earth is round. Well, no, the Earth isn't quite round. There's a refinement that it's actually kind of an oblate spheroid. And then there's more refinements that you can do because there's mountains and continents and ocean basins and stuff like that that change the gravitational potential. And it, it, so we're, we're dealing, with, I think, with electric fields now, not so much because there's these monstrous electric fields all over the cosmos, but because we're getting in, finally getting instruments that are the sensitivity needed to do this. And the models are getting to the point where, yeah, we're, we're, we, we sort of like solve sort of like the big part of the problem. Now we're working on refining the details. We want an extra decimal point when, when what we're able to predict. You know, you can do the, the gravitational field of the Earth as a, as a perfect sphere. And do quite well with that for a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you need to take into account that, oh, it's actually an oblate spheroid. Oh, actually, it's a little bit rougher than that. And it's just the issue. I think you've done a, a couple pieces about the, the different scales of, of at what point approximations are valid. I think you did one some months ago where you kind of covered some of that stuff. And you, and you talked about it in, I think, one of the uh, orbit trajectories, forecasting the orbits and stuff. Yeah, the uh, pra- practical applications of scientific uncertainty, which yes. I think yes. was the more interesting episode than the one that I tried to do earlier with episode, like, 94 or something. But, uh, yeah, well, mm-hmm. I mean, it, yeah, it's but- actually, you know, it's, we, we do the same thing with uh, GRAIL, so the GRAIL mission mm-hmm. around yes. the moon. I mean, I thought that yes. was really cool, and that started off with a higher orbit, and it was mm-hmm. these two spacecraft that had like a laser going between them, and it measured the tiny perturbations based on the little changes in gravity as it orbited the moon. And then they lowered its orbit so that they could get more precise measurements. And it was actually to the point where uh, I think they were maybe only 12 kilometers above the surface of the moon. And they said, <laughs> you know, if, if we didn't have Grail, we would not be able to maintain this orbit as we are because... Mm-hmm the tiny perturbations from everything were such that they had to make tiny corrections. And if they didn't know, if they weren't able to predict those based on the previous grail measurements, their their orbit would have been so low that it wouldn't have been stable. So, which is just kind of like, well, that's kind of neat. But uh, anyway, let's, uh, 
refocus and get back to uh, the electric sun because you and I uh, tend to digress a lot. So yeah, yeah, I, I'm I, about that. I think that we might but, have finished up the the second electric sun model. Maybe. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. So that so that's one of the main ones. Um, okay. So what's the, the third? I, okay, there, the two others that I've looked at a little bit but have not written a lot about. One of them is actually the guy arguing um, that wants to argue that the Birkeland model with the anode underneath the photosphere is the correct one. Um, of course, there's that whole issue of Birkeland saying that I couldn't get any of these to work. And a large part of it, I suspect, with the, some of the tests that I've tried to do of this, is the basic issue. If you put a, the 600 million volt potential, your electrons and your ions are going to be moving in opposite directions. And it creates a whole set of issues. Another thing that Birkeland didn't fully understand at that time was we were just now getting to understand what black body radiation was. Okay, and, and it has nothing actually... to do with racism. Yes. Okay, because yes. this is something... <laughs> how, 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 the, how the energy spectrum of a hot object looks and varies with temperature, if it's allowed to come to like an equilibrium. Right, so it's like um, uh, the, the old-style incandescent light bulbs were, would yeah. emit a black body because it basically glowed because it was hot. Right. So it, it emits this broad spectrum of radiation. So there were a number of issues in that, and I haven't gone into too many of the details on that as yet. That's one of those things where I'm trying to merge both Birkeland's original ideas with the more modern knowledge base and, and what was known at his time. Because they were at that time also making a lot of discoveries about, you know, Hale was doing the stuff about the magnetic fields of sunspots. And they didn't, but they didn't yet know about um, uh, the law about how the, the spots appear in like polar pairs where they tend to be opposite. You know, the ones that are next to each other tend to be opposite polarity, which I think was also a problem for Ber would have been a problem for Birkeland's model. Um, Birkeland also had put together this notion that yeah, at that time the big nuclear thing was radium. And so this, he was speculating about the speeds of the electrons coming off were sort of dependent upon uh, one of the decay modes of radium. Hmm. And so he was looking at, at that idea. But he, but he regarded that you know, radium was the power or somehow was the power source of the sun. So there was that model. But one of the more interesting ones I've come across lately is a guy that's saying that it's actually the sun is, is actually not maintained continuously by an electric current, but it's sort of like a piece of ball lightning. And basically, you know, somehow lightning strikes this massive sphere. We don't know, again, where the electric, where the, this charge density comes from or something like that. Um, and it lights up the sun and basically, I assume, provides all the internal energy. I've, I've not been able to get parse all the model yet and its, and its implication. But if you get, if you assume that, oh, well, all the energy in that lightning bolt is in the sun just kind of glowing and, and slowly losing the heat of this energy that it was stored in it based on either thermal or, or somehow electromagnetic. Um, that's been kind of interesting because it's given me an excuse to look at a lot of these ball lightning papers because they've actually had some interesting results of late come out on ball lightning. So that was one I'm still kind of exploring. But it does, again, pose the issue of where do these currents come from? Where do these monster currents come from? And, um, you know, I, I, I pick on the Electric Universe guys about saying this is, this is sort of like their version of, you know, God did it. Um, and why I also make the comparison to creationism, too, is they've got this magical, you know, electrical current that c comes and saves them anytime they need you know, some kind of thing to get powered. And, again, you know, that would be the really cool thing. What powers that? <laughs> you know, that, that's, so, you know, you, you, 
So they say, oh, well, you know, this solves the dark matter problem. This solves the neutrino problem. This solves all this problem. Well, yeah, but you solve that one problem by replacing it with five others. Mm-hmm. You know, where do these electric fields come from? How are they maintained? What actually sets them up? Um, so I put together a, uh, a piece uh, one time about, you know, how, how making electric fields. And, you know, they, they want to, Electric Universe wants to argue that, well, you know, electric fields are so much stronger than gravitational fields, so that is a much better explanation. Well, but the issue is, electric fields, they have a bipolar, literally, character. Magne- uh, gravitational fields always attract. You can accumulate large amounts of mass through gravity. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it just wants to pile on more. Whereas electric fields, they, they always want to... Uh, charged particles are always created in, in, in pairs. You know, you get... Uh, we, charge conservation seems to be still one of the best understood conservation laws around along with you know energy momentum you know there's mass. charge conservation yeah mass conservation angular momentum all these other conservation laws charge conservation seems to be be the big thing if you want to create you know if you have even if you start with a one charge particle and you slam it hard enough to do pair production it's going to produce equal numbers of the positive and negative charges so you're still going to wind up with a net charge of plus 1 Okay. And then you run into the problem of how do you separate them? Okay, well, how do you build up a potential difference? Well, you need energy to do that. And that's one of these things that um, is kind of always ignored. You know, they talk about, oh, well, you know, there's lightning. Well, lightning is, isn't just magically there. There's lots of different things that help maintain this electric potential between the ground and the sky. Some of it, now they're finding out that there's a certain amount of solar modulation to it based on the charged particles from the solar wind. Hmm. There's... Um, the issues of cosmic rays that also dump a certain number of ions into the upper atmosphere. And there's also the issue of, you know, cur- uh, air currents and stuff like that, putting dust up there. And dusty plasmas are a, re- a whole other field. I mean, they, they have, they've just really started doing good experiments with these that, um, that um, the plasmas can, can, can maintain higher potentials when there's a little bit of dust that the charge gets to attach to. So it helps set up these electric fields. But every time when you want to create one of these electric fields, you usually have to have energy from something else. In the case of the field, the Pinocchio-Rossland field I was talking about earlier, in this case it's the gravitational potential that provides the charge separation. But it's only 77 coulombs per solar mass. Um, one of the guys, you know, he argues that, oh, you want to be able to talk about you know, electric universe, go into a laboratory. I, and, and I just played off of that line. I said, notice that he says, go into a laboratory. Why? Because nature finds it difficult to produce electric fields. They, it needs energy from somewhere else to do it. Whereas in the laboratory, you have batteries, generators, and all these kinds of things that help you do it, you know, vacuum tube to lower the, the potential and stuff like that. And so the electric fields, you know, nature produces them and they're, they're nice little, little things that sort of like at they're, they're, like boundary layers between things. And you will see in a lot of the literature, there's this, this battle over terminology because some people like to call them double layers. Some people call it ambipolar diffusion. Um, you know, the, the, and, and some people just, you know, do the electric field. It's all, it's, and it's kind of this interplay between um, what the engineers in the lab like to use in their terminology and what the theorists who are trying to sort of like see this in the bigger context. You know, how does this fit in with the models? You know, electric fields show up very often in transitions between things. 
Um, there's probably several in the sun that you know get formed in transient layers. Magnetic reconnection. Electric universe people argue, oh, there's no such thing as magnetic reconnection. But that is the one of the few ways we know of that we can set up a transient electric field of very high strength in an otherwise neutral plasma is when these magnetic domains come together, it creates a boundary layer that has to match up by putting a current through it. So that's um, sort of like the uh, the rubber band type of analogy, if your rubber band yeah. is made up of currents, I guess? Well, you know, the, the, uh, there's various arguments. Uh, this is one of these problems where, you know, you try to talk to a person that, that, that does like the modeling of this stuff, and you say, well, well, you know, describe these complex things of magnetic reconnection. And they're not quite sure what the simulations are telling them. They, they, they don't want to talk about magnetic field lines because those really aren't real. Although they're a nice way to visualize it, you've got to be careful about over-interpreting them. Yes, and, because there are people who say it's, it's the same thing with gravity fields. It's like the, the sun emits this spiral gravity wave and every planet is on one of the, rides on one of those oh. waves. And it's like, no, <laughs> it's just a visualization thing. It's yes. not real like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the magnetic fields are due to a, ve a, a vector field, and you draw the you draw the field lines in once you've already defined the vector field. You've already solved Maxwell's equations. You know where the the field is going this way and that way, and then you draw in the magnetic field lines, and you try to use them to interpret what you're seeing. But it, for magnetic reconnection, it gets really messy because you know, particles move along magnetic fields in, in in weird and interesting ways. They spiral around them, but if your field's changing, sometimes they can kind of shift over to another, spiraling around another location and stuff like that. It's sort it's of like really, a topography map. That would be maybe a, a decent analogy where – except you have an undulating topography that's moving with time, but you yes. draw these fields, these contour lines. And so mm -hmm. it's not like – the the value is that exact thing at that contour line and it's flat everywhere else it's that you've drawn these with a certain resolutions just like you draw field lines with a certain resolution mm -hmm. and then you with the enm you have the complication in space where okay now your topography map is shifting and moving with time <laughs> yeah. it'll fall down into a different hole you know as the, as the particle moves along yes and now but my listeners might know why i don't like enm <laughs> uh but yeah, and visualizing it is is a real challenge. Um, magnetic fields are just very difficult. Uh, Faraday got us started with that notion because he found it simple for him to visualize, and um, and it it kind of works. I mean, it also explained this this odd. It seemed to explain this odd little problem of well, gee, it works whether you move the magnet across the across the current loop or move the current loop across the magnet. doesn't seem to depend on the, on the state of motion. And that's actually an artifact of relativity, which is another funny thing that Electric Universe guys have a problem with. Mm -hmm. But uh, that, that, that could be a whole other... I could, I could go on for another couple of hours about that. But, <laughs> well, I think I, that the, uh, I, the I, listeners I might be getting... getting yeah. Uh, so why don't we try to, uh, try to wrap it up? Uh, getting okay. back, I guess, to the electric sun, I mean, you've... You discussed in detail the first model, and then uh, I think we, we discussed in bits and pieces the other three. If you could... The second model, well, the, the Thornhill model was pretty heavy. The last two I really kind of just dabbled with, because I haven't really done a lot of detailed writing on those as yet. Um, I'm still working on stuff. I, I'm finding these fascinating papers about you know these guys that managed to catch a spectrum of ball lightning. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I heard about that. Earlier this year. Yeah, it was, was kind of bad. I finally got a copy of that paper. <laughs> It was a Chinese team, I think. 
Yes, yeah, they managed. They managed just happening to be catching a lightning strike and caught some ball lightning in the same time. I was like, whoa. Yeah. So, so if and you by had, the way, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, the spectrum doesn't look anything like the sun spectrum. Yeah, well, it had like a uh, uh, what was it? silicon and uh, yeah. something else. Basically, it looked like soil. Yes. Yeah, and that's actually a bunch of things that I'm finding in a lot of the ball lightning papers is there. there's um, various reports about, you know, silica seems to be kind of an important part of this. And uh, so anyway, so I'm trying to – and some people, by the way, have interesting mathematical models of ball lightning that, you know, almost look like they might be, you know, reasonable contenders. Well, so, so if you had to – so this might be difficult, uh, but if you had to wrap up in one minute or less uh, – <laughs> Uh, the electric sun ideas and why they don't hold water. Uh, so I, I liken this to people asking me to wrap up the Planet X ideas into one minute or less. It's like, well, which one? Uh, but yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the basic idea with Planet X is you know, it's this planet that comes in and it doesn't work for these various reasons. And so uh, if you could try to do that with the electric sun – uh, to try to summarize it for the listeners who might have gotten lost in some of the more detailed explanations. Yeah, I can do that. The um, well, the bi- the big problem with the electric sun is that it makes predictions where we're flying spacecraft. It has implicate if you want to power the sun by some external means, or not power the sun if you want want to put these really high voltages and stuff like that. It really has impacts for spacecraft that we have flying around right now. And we're actually got a thing called Solar Probe Plus that's under development. It's going to go within nine or so solar radii of the of the photosphere, and that you know, okay, well, where's their prediction on what the particle environment's going to be like? They, here, they, here, they could do some great success, and instead we get stuff like, oh, well, you know, it's actually a, a psychological and, and sociological problem for for presenting electric electric sun models. Eh. Yeah, it doesn't really work. <laughs> you you. The beauty of science for electric and magnetic fields is you define your current. If you say the current's going through here and it's got this amount of stuff and it covers this range of space and, you know, you got charges here, Maxwell's equations will tell you where the electric fields are and what their values are, where the magnetic fields are and what their values are. There is nothing sociological or psychological about it. It's why technology works. It works why a, it, it explains. It's why a cell phone works, even though you may not believe the quantum mechanics behind the integrated circuit chips inside. <laughs> well, so, yeah, actually, that sounds a lot like the Planet X stuff. It's like, okay, we have yeah. gravity and it it works. works, and we have orbits and they work. You define your Planet X and it doesn't work. So, yeah, yeah I mean, actually. I guess it, it is a good analogy with the maybe you can go on to that instead of conflating creationism with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but well, it you know, yeah, the, what's the quote that I that I stole clearly stole from someone else? Uh, oh, it's the Phil Dick quote on one of my recent posts. A reality is what's there even when you stop believing in it. Oh yes, um, yeah, I, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, so that so and and he was one that really was good at bending reality in a lot of his books, but. Yeah, that's 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 kind of it. I mean, science science works, and the beauty of it of the science you can present science mathematically means that other people can can do it. Um, you know, there's the, the sort of like this notion that you know there's a worldview and the only true believers can do it. But science defines very well, very fairly rigorous rules. Putting stuff in mathematics means that other people can do it because it wasn't up to you know Einstein 
Einstein couldn't prove a lot of his theories. He had to be able to rely on other people to check his calculations, and he made a few bloopers, and also to do the experiments. Mm -hmm. It's not that, oh, this guy did it and he did it all. He defined the whole field for you know all time. That's the way some electric universe people try to say the Pratt models. Oh, they don't need to do any refinements to it because it's already done. Yeah, it's, that's not how it prediction, works. Yeah, every prediction that it could be made by it has been made, and it doesn't really matter. And and that and that's just it. Science can't propagate unless the next person can pass it on. You know, now if it, is it a psychological thing? You know, like, oh, I believe. You know, I'm a conversion. I'm a converter. Or is it something where you know I understand the mathematics? I can do these calculations too. And there's another new idea that they didn't include that I now can incorporate in because I've got a new mathematical technique that can solve that type of problem. And then you publish and, it, and people use and it and verify it. Yeah. whether it works or not. Exactly. So that it, 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 and science is is a lot an iterative process. Some people like to say, "Oh, well, gee, you know, they they you know, science is quote overturned all the time." Well, no, not really. It's it's really more like iteratively solved. You know, we right. we're using the same fluid equations of fluid mechanics that were done back in the eighteen hundreds. We're just refining how is viscosity calculated, how is you know some of the densities, how is turbulence dealt with, and we're refining a lot of those techniques. The sad part is, you know, a lot of the big the big picture items. Have been pretty much solved, and a lot of modern science is really refining a lot of the details to make it to make it work in other regimes. Yeah. Which is why people who say, uh, you know, for example, there is a certain uh, certain pseudoscientist whose initials are MB, who's the <laughs> uh, what I describe as the Robin to Richard Hoagland's Batman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I think everyone now knows who I'm talking about. Uh, but anyway, yes. so he claims, or maybe actually it was Hoagland who claimed that uh, Werner von Braun just stuck in an extra term into the rocket equation, and oh, you know, yes. people have been using that, that ever yes. since. And it's like, yes. wait, what? Yeah. What? I mean, I derived the rocket equation in classical mechanics and in college physics. It's like, yes. you, you can't do that. Just, it's basic stuff, and you can't yeah. just pretend that someone snuck in an extra term and that nobody's going to notice. <laughs> yes. <sighs> well, that, you know, the guy that did the, that, well, I did the piece about uh, Lemaitre and the, and the, as a creationist cosmology and the, and the, and the, so the big bang cosmology has a, um, uh, you know, in, intrinsically religious. So I go and I print out the, the Lemaitre, you know, the free FLRW metric. I said, well, where's the religious term in here? <laughs> you know, did I you see know, the big G. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. Actually, it's not in that that metric. I don't it was a joke. It's all, it's all done kind of dimensionalist stuff, so they so they get away with it that way. But yeah, so it's it's kind of fascinating in that regard. That you know, it's hard to to fight kind of the innumeracy that people don't understand. You know, oh well, any any mention of this electric field means that these monster electric fields exist. You know, any mention of you know five volts detected here. You know, between the when one of the things a spacecraft was approaching a comet, and that somehow means that you know the six million volts or six hundred million volts is uh, the um, you know between the sun and the comet or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it, it's hard to get to get th get through that that. And, and the funny part is, that, well, not funny kind of sad part is this this thing extends to our understanding of, of uh, numerical values of money which i think is probably part of our economic problems <laughs> is that people don't can't really grasp some of these issues on there when i worked in business i had that problem a lot when i did the, a lot of the consulting and stuff like that there were just people that didn't understand that the book's got a balance mm -hmm. uh, so all right um but anyway well i'm I've, exhausted i'm sure you are too yeah i've taken up well you know it 
when this podcast goes out, I think people will see it's in a total of about two hours for the both parts. But okay. we've been talking for about three hours, so <laughs> or two and, and a half. Yeah. So yeah. I will let you go and thank you very much. And uh, hopefully, Thanks. listeners will uh, be edumacated about edumacated <laughs> yeah. okay. with some edutainment about the electric universe. That wraps up this topic for the 116th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned something at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even tweet me, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and I'm always behind in responding. If you have any suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them, and I don't edit this end part. Also, please write a review and rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then you should probably tell people about it. After all, it's it's nice to tell people when you enjoy something, at least as long as it's uh, age, socioeconomic, and politically correct, as this podcast probably is.